Oh. Find, please, the book of Revelation, chapter 12. And surely you were expecting me to preach from Matthew or Luke today. I've never preached from Revelation on the Sunday before Christmas, but I've never uh, celebrated Christmas in a pandemic either. Revelation 12, the last book of the Bible. Revelation 12, and we'll begin at verse 1. In so many ways, it doesn't, um, doesn't seem like Christmas. The living Christmas tree has become so much a part of my life, and I'm sure that's true for you, that without it, it just seems like so much is missing. By the way, I, I, I do want to say a word of deep gratitude to the musicians, to the tech crew, to those who directed and did uh, such a marvelous, marvelous job of preparing presenting, preparing and presenting the virtual living Christmas tree. If you missed it, it'll air on uh, Christmas Day at noon on WHDF, which is the North Alabama's CW, and then um, on WHNT too. But it, in so many ways, doesn't, it just feels like, sort of like Christmas. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read from what is sort of a Christmas story. Revelation 12. A great and wondrous sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant. By the way, the woman here, biblical scholars differ as to whether it's Mary. It could be Mary, the mother of Jesus, could be the nation of Israel from which the Messiah came. Verse 2, she was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads. And by the way, the dragon, uh, universally in the commentaries, the dragon represents the prince of darkness, Satan, the devil, the evil one, the enemy, Beelzebub. Let me start at verse 2 again. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon, the prince of darkness, with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its heads. Its tail swept a third of the stars of the sky, out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule, and this quotes from the Psalms, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. That male child universally agreed on by the students of the, of, of the New Testament universally agree that this is the Messiah. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. Now the details of this are not discernible. This is Revelation and Daniel and some other books in the Bible are called apocalyptic literature. Hard to understand. Uses, uses figurative, poetic, highly symbolic language to represent spiritual truths. The commentaries, and I looked at everyone in my library this week to, to get my best understanding of this text. But all the, all the commentaries have a lot of maybes and perhaps and mights and could be's. 
because the language is so highly symbolic. But what is agreed on is, again, that the dragon is the, is the prince of darkness and that the, the, the male child is the Messiah. The rest of the language, though, speaks to a reality in a place we cannot see, to what some people would refer to as spiritual warfare, to the, to the epic battle between good and evil, between the evil one and God himself that rages still in a world as real as the world we know, as real as the room that we're sitting in, whichever room you're sitting in. But a world, a world we can't see, but a world where spiritual forces continue to do battle. So the Prince of Darkness knew, who knew the Hebrew scriptures, by the way, quoted to them, quoted, he knew the Bible, quoted it to Jesus when he tempted Jesus in the wilderness. The evil one who knew the Hebrew scriptures knew that the Messiah would come and did everything he could to stop that from happening. He knew that with the coming of the Messiah, everything would change. So he did everything that he could to keep that from happening. But despite his efforts, an angel appeared to Joseph and said, you're going to, or to Mary, you're going to have a baby. You'll be, you'll conceive by the power of the God's spirit and, and you'll call him Emmanuel, God with us. And he said to Joseph, don't worry about Mary. She has been faithful to you and she, her son will be God's son. And, and then a whole chorus of angels appeared to shepherds and announced that in Bethlehem, a baby had been born and they went and sure enough, there lay a, a baby boy. But the, but the evil one did not give up even then. You might remember that he used that insane insecurity of Herod to try to eliminate this male child so that Herod, remember hearing that the king of the Jews had been born and being threatened by that, ordered that all the male children two years and younger in Bethlehem be killed. So the battle continued to rage. The prince of darkness, the evil one, did his best to stop the song. When the Messiah was born, when Jesus was born, the song was born, the song with a capital S, a song of hope and love and peace and joy, all of which were unprecedented. The Prince of Darkness did his best to stop the song, but he could not stop, could not stop the music. Those of you who are children of the 80s will remember that pop song, Can't Stop the Music. You can't stop the music, nobody can stop the music. Take the cold from snow, tell the trees don't grow, tell the wind don't blow, but you can't stop the music. I got my inspiration for this message this morning, exactly a week ago, seated over here on the front row. Uh, Esther was playing... Um, a Christmas carol, and she plays so magnificently, and it, it was so splendid and, and grand, and, and, and the, well, that, that organ is such a, such a majestic instrument, and, and it was a great carol, and people began to sing. Now, we have been saying, now, don't, don't sing because it's dangerous, but it was like it's been bottled up for nine months. It's like, it, I, I could just, I imagine what was going through people's hearts and heads. I haven't been able to sing for nine months. And, and so people began to, some people tried harder than others not to sing. I could hear you, you were. And I get it, I really do. And I still think it's a good idea for us not to sing. It's just healthy. But I understand that the song has been, has been bottled up for so long that people just couldn't help singing. In fact, I, I thought 
I thought in that moment, I thought about a, a song. How can I keep from singing? The Bible says in Ephesians 5, sing and make music from your heart to the Lord. It, it never has been about primarily singing with our lips. The question always has been primarily, is there a song in your heart? Writers of Christian music over the years have always understood that. Some of you remember an old gospel song I remember from when I was a kid. My heart can sing when I pause to remember a heartache here is but a stepping stone. And then one of my favorite hymns, there's within my heart a melody. And of course, then sings my soul. The question never has been primarily about whether we can even make a joyful noise. The question always primarily has been, is there a song? Is there a song in your heart? Is there, there, do you have a, a heart song? Is there a, is your soul, can your soul sing? And I, I've got only two points uh, today. And that is, these are the two. One, if you want a song, you can get it. Two, if you've got a song, you can sing it. Number one, if you want a song, you can, you can get it. You might remember some of you, the Irish rock band, U2, Bono, you know, is a Christian. They have an album. Uh, the title of the album is Yahweh, which of course is Hebrew for Jehovah or the, 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 the God of Israel. In that song, Yahweh, are these interesting words. Take this soul, stranded in skin and bones, take this soul and make it sing. Now that's not a hymn, it's not a Christian song. But take this soul, stranded in skin and bones, take this soul and, and make it sing. Don't you imagine that there are lots of us who really want to sing, who wish we had a, a soul song? If your heart is looking for a song, I invite you to Jesus. Now, I, I have to say, there are people who are not followers of Jesus who are happy. There are people who are followers of Jesus who have joy. I, that's true. And it's also true that lots of people who are followers of Jesus don't look like they're very happy. But it's also true, at least I believe it's true, that there is a depth of joy and there is a richness to life. And there's a way of looking at our world that is impossible unless we are connected, unless we are connected to our creator through Jesus. If your heart is looking for a song, I invite you to Jesus. There is an old hymn from the 1940s Titled, Jesus Gives Me a Song. It says, in sin I wandered seeking a song. Days were so dreary, nights were so long. One day believing, Jesus receiving, my soul thrilled with a song. Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. I think we're not stretching the meaning of his words if we say Jesus came so that your heart could sing. 
If you're looking for a song, you can have one. You can get it. I invite you to, to give all that you have and all that you are to Jesus, to follow him with all that you have and all that you are. If you're looking for a song, you can have one. I invite you to Jesus. Second, if you have a song, you can sing it. Again, I'm not suggesting we rear back and let her rip. You know, the, the research still says when we sing, we expel the virus into the potentially spread it. And so I'm not really talking about rearing back and singing, but I'm talking about a choice. I'm talking about a choice to be joyful. Philippians 4.4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. The word rejoice there is a, is a translation of the Greek word Cairo, which means do joy. Joy there is a verb. Joy is not something we passively experience. Joy in the Bible is something, not something that we sit around and wait on. Joy in the Bible is something that we choose. So, so do joy. Now, there are things that are beyond the control of some of us. There is such a thing as, as chemical imbalances and depression is a real thing. There are, there are psychological disorders that make joy very difficult. There are scars that are so deep from traumatic experience that there is no, no switch to flip and just be happy. Those things are real. And, and a chemical imbalance in one's brain is no, no more to be ashamed of than, than the fact that as I've told you before, my thyroid doesn't work well. But for most of us, for most of us, joy is a choice. I'm not talking about those for whom trauma makes it hard to be joyful. I'm not talking about those for whom chemical imbalances make, it, make joy difficult. But for most of us, it is a recognition, and please hear me, a, a biblical recognition that heartbreak is inevitable, that misery is optional, and joy is a choice. That heartbreak is inevitable, that misery is optional, and joy is a choice. And I'm talking about the decision to sing when singing is hard. Paul and Silas shackled to the wall of a, of a jail cell at midnight began to sing. And the, the whole place shook. I don't know how that happened. I don't know if maybe Silas started to hum and then Paul joined in and they started singing a, a hymn, maybe one of the Psalms. But at midnight, shackled to a wall, they began to sing. Ron Nickel was part of, uh, with Chuck Colson, part of Prison Ministry Fellowship. Ron Nickel wrote about going to Zambia where they visited a prison. They took them, they were part, again, remember, they're part of Prison Ministry Fellowship. They took them to a maximum security area where the, the conditions as they described the make Alabama prison sound like the Taj Mahal. He talked about the, that there were no sanitary um, opportunities, if you will, that they were terribly overcrowded, stifling heat, squalor, squalor. But when they walked by, when Ron Nickel and, and Chuck Colson walked by, 
He said, the men in that maximum security area stood and began to sing hymns in four-part harmony with gusto, he said. Ron Nichols said he looked at the guys and and behind them on the wall, etched with chalk on the wall behind them, was a picture of Jesus, his arms outstretched on the cross. And here these guys were singing. It struck me, he said, with great force, the force of revelation that Christ was there with them, sharing their suffering and giving them joy enough to sing in such a place. I was supposed to speak to them to offer some inspiring words of faith, but I could only mumble a few words of greeting. They were the teachers, not I. If God has put a song in your heart, then sing it. The prince of darkness would like very much to rob you of your song. Don't let him. The evil one would like very much for the followers of Jesus to stop singing. Let's not. I'm talking about the biblical recognition that heartache is inevitable, misery is optional, that joy is a choice. I'm talking about the choice to sing when singing is hard. If there's anyone whose song should have been stifled this year, it's Austin and Cindy Boyd, who are sitting in the balcony. If you were here at our Thanksgiving service, and it was beautiful, by the way, people telling about how even 2020 had not robbed them of their joy. Austin spoke uh, that night, and I asked him for his permission to share his words with you today. He began by encouraging us not to, not to, put, not to just put 2020 behind us, and we're tempted to do that, to just want to forget. He, he, he encouraged us to, to find our song even, in, uh, even despite 2020. These were Austin's words. Please listen carefully. In late September, we traveled to Birmingham to care for our oldest son, Austin. And that's our Austin's namesake. In late September, we traveled to Birmingham to care for our oldest son, Austin, after a debilitating surgery on his foot. That same night, we received a call from Pensacola, news that Cindy's dad was in his final hours. We raced to Florida late that night and got there just in time. Cindy's dad, Bobby, passed away at home in the arms of his family as he had wished. A week later, as Cindy's dad, Bobby, had requested, I preached his graveside service. It was a tender tribute with taps and honors for a Korean War veteran. That was on Saturday. Late Monday night, Just after we'd returned returned home from Pensacola, we got the next call, this time from our daughter-in-law in in Birmingham. Mr. Boyd, Lee cried in desperation. That's their daughter-in-law, Lee. Mr. Boyd, Austin's stopped breathing. Please hurry. Sometime after midnight, we held what was left of Austin in our arms. 
I cannot adequately describe our grief of that night in words, the awful gripping loss of saying goodbye to our eldest son. And I can't speak these words without tears. A deep and essential part of me and an even deeper and more consequential part of Cindy was torn out of us. It's a loss that can never be replaced or soothed. We can relate to King David's deep lament over the loss of his son. We have lived it. On Friday, October 2nd, six days after the graveside service for my father-in-law, Cindy and I buried our son. Eight years earlier, I had officiated the wedding for Austin and Lee. A, a deep, unexplainable calm inside me called me to officiate again, this time at his graveside. A friend asked me, how can you speak at your own son's service? I answered, because I believe the message. Austin shared with me the words he spoke at the heartbreaking graveside of his namesake, Austin. He spoke there of God's love and God's plan, a plan often, often unknown on earth. He spoke of eternal life through Jesus. He talked about heaven as home and even gave thanks that his son was home. And he read these words of Jesus. I am resurrection and I am life, says the Lord. Whoever has faith in me shall have life even though he die. And everyone who has life and has committed himself to me in faith shall not die forever. I don't know if I could have done that. But when his friend asked Austin, how could you? How could you speak at your son's graveside? He answered, because I believe what I'm going to say. And so if you believe, if you believe, if you believe Christmas, if you believe that just over 2,000 years ago, uh, God so passionately loved His creation that He took upon, as Son, took upon flesh and dwelt among us. If you believe that Emmanuel, the name Emmanuel, God with us is true, if you believe John 3.16, that God so loved people like us that He gave His Son, if you believe that there really was a choir of angels that sang to the shepherds, if you really believe that this world is not all that is, and that there is home, and that Jesus is the resurrection and the life, if you really believe, then how can we keep from singing?